Kids, you can head off for Kid Zone at this time. Just as they're going, just a, a word on the uh, Elder Care Fund because in the last month we've had uh, especially two significant requests. And, uh, and I was at a MCC AGM at the middle of October, and one of the reports that they were giving was about homelessness and how part of the program is to help prevent homelessness, that if you can prevent someone from becoming homeless. Uh, just how much better, obviously, that is for them and the cost and all of that. And as, as they were saying that, I thought, wow, that's what we had just done. Someone had just been in, in a real need uh, and needed the deposit to be able to keep the place, otherwise they were going to be homeless. And I, and I thank you that you were a part of that, to be able to have money available to uh, get that request and to, to talk and pray as elders and to say, yeah, we, we want to meet that need we, and, uh, and to be able to do so. So thank you for giving towards that and participating in the work that God is doing and wants done in the world. Let's uh, take some time to pray together this morning. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that though all of us were homeless, Spiritually, Lord Jesus, you came to pay the ultimate sacrifice for us. Not only to save us from death and the consequences of our sins, but Lord, to save us for a wonderful relationship with you and for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you give, your empowering presence to be within us day by day. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I especially want to lift up before you this morning the, the youth and the leaders and their sponsors as they are uh, going to be traveling back. Lord, we pray for safety for them on the road. Lord, we pray that the experiences that they have had together, times with you and with one another, Lord, that those seeds that have been sown might take root, that they might grow and that you might multiply them. Lord, that it might impact not only their lives, but might have this ripple effect out into, maybe even into their families and into their friends. And Lord, as we open up your word today, we pray that you, Lord, your word would not return to you empty, but would accomplish exactly what you desire for it this day. And so, Lord, we look to you. Amen. Well, somebody was wondering, where have you been? You haven't been preaching for a long time. Well, I was on holidays for a couple of weeks, and Elaine and I had a chance to go over to Vancouver, Vancouver Island, and we got in that wonderful stretch of, of weather yet before the rains hit, and the rains came just in time for the fishing that I was doing, and uh, it, was, it was great. It was really great. Enjoyed that. Well, we're going to be getting back to the series on Exodus. Remember Exodus? That's what we had been working on beginning in, the, in September. And just so you know, my goal is to get the Israelites out of Egypt before Advent. <laughs> now, I know that's kind of an aggressive timeline, and I was thinking about, you know, Moses also had an aggressive timeline that he was working with, and he was planning to lead the Israelites out of Egypt very quickly. Um, now imagine with me for a moment, if you will, uh, that you're Zipporah. Zipporah is Moses' wife, okay? Now, you've made this trek all the way from your homeland to Egypt on this dream, this mission that God has given your husband. 
And whatever doubts and reservations Moses had about carrying out God's mission, I think they were put to rest after the overwhelming show of support in his meeting with the elders of Israel. Remember that at the end of chapter 4. You know, it says he showed them the signs and they believed and there they were worshiping God. God is really on the move. And, and, and so Zipporah notices today Moses, he's up early to go to work. I, I mean, she can't remember him looking so upbeat as he prepares to go to Pharaoh to deliver God's ultimatum to it. He's been practicing, let my people go, you know. And though, and throughout the day, Zipporah, she's probably wondering, I wonder how it's going. When will he come back with the good news? Lunchtime passes. Well, that's normal. Dinner time comes and goes. Oh, he's, he's probably working with the elders on the details, you know, of, of the exodus. And then it's getting late. So you put the kids to bed. And finally, Moses stumbles through the door looking at if he has been run over by a chariot. There's tread marks, if you will. It looks like it at least visibly across his forehead. And you say to him, you look awful. What happened to you? And you maybe even pull up a chair and you, you know, hand him his dinner plate with his cold food. And at first he's silent as a stone. But at your coaxing, he begins to unpack what he calls his day from hell. And he tells her about, you know, Pharaoh's response, you know, is to oppress the people even more. And the elders, in response, they want to now have nothing to do with Moses. Zipporah, I can't even believe, begin to tell you how disappointed I am with God. I can't believe he would do such a thing. Make these sky-high promises and then not deliver on them. Now our situation is hopeless. Do you hear me? Hopeless. And Zipporah says, don't tell me. Tell God. Well, we're going to pick it up and see what Moses says to God. In, in Exodus chapter 5, right at the beginning, we're going to pick it up. at Exodus 5 verse 22. I believe I left that slide. If not, well, we'll, we'll pick it up from there. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on us, this people, and, and you have not rescued your people at all. And the Lord said to Moses, now, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country, his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God." 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites, the king of Pharaoh of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now I'm not going to read everything in all of the genealogy along the way here. But notice it is giving us the background and it is saying, it was this Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt and their divisions. And then we will uh, pick it up following that. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And now in verse In chapter 7, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 60, no, 80 years old. And Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Well, these verses focus on the conversation that took place between Moses and God, a conversation that is deeply shaped and influenced by the utter failure of Moses' initial meeting with Pharaoh, his day from hell. Rather than improving their situation, his, meeting with, his initial meeting with Pharaoh resulted in their situation becoming far, far worse. And the people... Well, they're quick to pin all the blame on someone, and they pin it on Moses. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe a big failure, or maybe you are so disappointed with God. You feel like he's totally let you down. Well, Moses has it out with God. And in his honest-to-God talk, his heart-to-heart talk with God, Moses asks two questions, and he files an official complaint. Although one could argue that even his questions, they sound a lot like complaints, too. Like his first question. Why have you brought trouble on this people? Hmm, question, but it sounds really like complaining. Moses is, I think, overstating the case, claiming that God is directly responsible for harming rather than helping his people, when it's actually been Pharaoh who's been doing it. 
But things have gotten far worse since God got involved, and so Moses puts all the blame on him. And Moses' second question, it appears to focus on himself. Why did you ever send me, little old inadequate me? But I think Moses is mainly questioning God's planning. After all, God's plan to deliver his people is a crazy, it's turned into a disaster. The people have written Moses off. Pharaoh's pride and arrogance that he went to tackle, well, it's grown even bigger and bigger. And Moses, I think Moses is ready to quit. Obviously, Moses expected a much quicker and easier way out than God did. And I wonder how often our, mo- our expectations are like Moses. Unrealistic. You know, maybe you're praying for a few days for a situation and there's like no change. Or, you know, you you signed up to help with the children's ministry or some other other ministry or, or, you know, and then you, you start at it and it is a lot harder and much less glamorous than you thought it would be. I appreciate what Peter N. says in his commentary. He says, Moses is undone because his focus is on the disastrous outcome of his first encounter with Pharaoh, not on the character of the God who called him. And yet, rather than rebuke Moses for his terrible performance review, not Moses' terrible performance review, it's the performance review he gave God. God, it's a fail, okay? And yet the Lord doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he reassures him with a promise instead. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Basically, he's saying, Moses, you have got a front row seat to the greatest, what will be the greatest show on earth. (laughs) And up to this point, you see, we have seen what Moses has done, going to confront Pharaoh. And we've seen what Pharaoh has done in response, you know, made life unbearable for the Israelites. Now it is God's turn to act and for all of them to see what he can do. Yes, the promised deliverance has not yet happened, but God promises it surely will. And it will happen in dramatic fashion. You see, because he says, Pharaoh will not merely let the people go, you know, as if it's prying open his hands to let them go, and then he wants to go out. No, he will actively, and God is finished with Pharaoh, Pharaoh will actively drive his whole labor force out of Egypt. I mean, think about how impossible that must have seemed to, to Moses at this point in the story, living in the midst of failure and disappointment with God. I was reminded of the story that Shelley Duick, our guest speaker last week, shared from Colombia, that is Colombia, South America. And she talked about uh, one of the projects that 120 farmers, that they had worked with 120 farmers, helping them instead of grow cocaine, you know, grow cacao, which is cocoa, right, uh, a good product. And, and then it was, it was gaining success, and then a paramilitary group, everything in Colombia is divided into the military or a paramilitary or gang of some sort that is, you know, controls the area. And that local group came for their war tax, I believe they called it. Sometimes they call it a vaccine. 
That is, if you want to stay healthy, you pay the tax. Well, the gang, that members that came, they were shocked to hear from the church leaders that, no, we don't pay the war tax. And they were shocked by that, and, and they shared the story of why, that they were a historic peace church. And that this, if they looked and they asked people, they would find out this was for the, the, the good of the whole community, not to try to make themselves richer. Well, God was at work in that situation, as Shelley told us about it, and by the time it was over, not only did those farmers, did that church and the farmers get a tax exemption, some of the leaders who had first, you know, come to collect that even came to apologize. <laughs> and it's like, like, who could do that except God, right? Beyond what we can ask or imagine. And I'm thinking that. And so God continues in his response to Moses by recalling three key aspects of a previous conversation that he had with him in chapter 3. First, I am the Lord. You will notice if he said that several times. And he says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And third, I have heard your groaning. And I remembered my covenant. Now, by recalling these, God is underlining He's the same God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, as he says, God Almighty, El Shaddai in Hebrew, the Mighty One. But in the second half of verse 3, he is also telling them there is more to him than they have known yet to date. Now, while it is possible to interpret the saying that, you know, by my name the Lord, I did not reveal myself, you know, as if he was giving them a brand new name they had never heard. It is most likely what he is saying is that name was used, and we know it all the way back from Genesis 2, it's used. But the significance of it was not known. You weren't aware of its full scope. And what the Lord says and does in the Exodus will greatly expand their understanding and experience of him. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, will forever after be known as the one who saves. The God who saves. That's who he is. We, we, in the psalm this morning, Psalm 68, God our Savior, the Lord is God our Savior. I was thinking about the significance of this. Remember when the angel comes, I think it's the angel that comes and speaks to Joseph in, in Matthew chapter 1. You will call the name of this child that Mary is pregnant with, you will call him Jesus the name Joshua, or it means the Lord saves. That's what he's going to be famous for and known for. Well, God had revealed himself to the, to the patriarchs. He revealed himself as the guide. Remember, Moses, I mean Aaron, I'm, I mean Abraham, I'm going to tell you, show you to the place where, you, where I'm calling you, calling you. And then he had also been protector on the way. He'd been the provider. He'd been the healer. Healer from barrenness, even. Right? But there is more to him than this. And I thought about when Elaine and I got married. Oh, I knew Elaine. And then we got married, and I learned there were more things about Elaine that I didn't really know before, and vice versa. Better than ever. Right? And if this is the way it is with human relationships, that there's more to the person than we ever knew, how much more so with God. He is far beyond our capacity and ability to understand fully. And yet when we encounter a situation, a problem or crisis that's different or bigger than we've ever encountered before, 
I don't know about you, but I often despair rather than think, hmm, maybe this is an opportunity to learn something new about God. Maybe something about God's wisdom, because mine is run out. Maybe something about the depth of God's compassion or his power. Or maybe as the church in Canada, maybe this is an opportunity for us to learn that it's not about us, it's about God and what he can do. Well, verses 3 and 4 underline that there's going to be something new, but he's still the same God who has every intention of keeping the initial promises he made in the past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 5, God underlines that he knows firsthand, not secondhand, he knows firsthand what is happening. And from now on, you will all know, he says, that I am the Lord. I am greater than you realize, mightier, more faithful, more compassionate. You see, Moses, if you recall, basically he had known what God was up to. Do you really know what you're doing, God? What in the Sam Hill are you doing? And especially, how could that failure that he had experienced be part of God's plan? I think about Peter, when Jesus is sharing with him, God's plan is for him to go and die on a cross. And Peter hears that. That is the craziest thing, Jesus, I have ever heard. You've got to get rid of that plan. There's got to be a better one. Right? God doesn't have to justify his actions to anyone, certainly not to Moses. And yet, what is amazing is how much of his plan that he lets Moses in on, and us. In fact, Old Testament theologian Elmer Martins describes what we are told in verses 6 to 8 as God's design. He's written a whole book, a whole Old Testament theology about it based on these verses. And he says, basically, God's design as it unfolds here is for deliverance. It's for community. It's for an intimate knowledge of God. And also, it's about abundant life. We'll just look at this briefly. The Lord's initial design for his people, as articulated in verse 6, is deliverance. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then to this general statement of deliverance, two other salvation images are added. I will free you, liberate you. It's, a, it's the verb almost always used for rescue. I will rescue you from being slaves to them. And then he says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgments. Redemption, usually someone, you know, became a slave because they did not, they couldn't pay their bills or whatever, and they needed a redeemer. Okay, someone to reclaim them out of that. And God uses these images to what he's going to do for this deliverance. And then the second component in God's design is the formation of a godly community. Not just individuals, but together. He says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. This is covenant language. What we would say is, sounds like marriage language. Indeed, it is. In, in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. It's, that's they, when a couple pledges themselves to each other, this is the language that they are, are using. And God is saying that his plan is not only to save his people from the clutches of that abuser, Pharaoh, but to save them for a deeply personal and committed relationship with himself. That's my plan, Moses. 
And then the third component in God's design, it fleshes this out further in the depth of the relational and experiential knowledge of himself that he has planned for his people. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. His point is that they will have a, a personal experiential knowledge of him. And I thought about, in contrast, Christianity is so much about a personal experience of God. Whereas other religions, like Islam, for example, I mean, God is just the distant one. You know, definitely he's in charge, but there's just no sense of personal relationship. That's not really the Lord. The Lord is offering himself to be known. And he invites his people into the adventure, the delight of knowing him personally and intimately. And if we skip forward to the moment to the New Testament, he will give his very presence to live, to dwell within each of us when we open up our lives to him. That's intimate knowledge of God. And the fourth component is to experience abundant life. Now, I know verse 8 talks about how he will bring them into the promised land. And God has already promised Abraham that he and his descendants would have a place, a land of their own to live in, that they would call their home. It would be their inheritance, Nahala in Hebrew. And often this promised land is described as a place flowing with milk and honey. I know the VeggieTales characters say it sounds sticky, right? But no, it's really that it is lavish. It is a Hebrew way of saying, as Elmer Old Testament professor Elmer Martin says, it's a Hebrew way of saying it is a place in which life is pleasant and in which living is marked by abundance. Abundant life. Jesus in John 10 verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, just looking. A very little window here. One of the things, if we connect the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament story is always it here, and it will continue to revolve around the land. Looking forward to being into the promised land, and then when they get in the promised land, they're going to they're gonna blow it, and they're going to become homeless. And then it's all about returning to the land. And then when we get to the New Testament, I did a, a study of this years ago when I was in seminary, and it's like the whole story has been going around the land and this place of abundant life. And then we get to the New Testament and there's almost nothing said about the land. And I know there's wild speculations that, that take place, but what happens, the language in the New Testament instead, the focus, this place of dwelling and inheritance and blessing becomes in Christ. And so the verses even that were read from Ephesians earlier are in Christ, you know, are all the blessings that we experience the abundant life. That's the fulfillment of it if we fast forward for a moment. Well, coming back, in verse 9, Moses, he's just been given God's grand design. And he goes and he delivers it to the people, this good news. But they will not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They were in desperate need of good news and they just cannot hear it because they have been so disappointed. You see, they had gone from feeling absolutely hopeless that their situation was never going to change and then Moses arrived and he did these signs that God had given him and they got their hopes up. And then those hopes were utterly dashed. 
And I think they figured they were never going to dare get their hopes up again. Sometimes we have such disappointments in life that we just think, that hurts so much, I am not going to hope again. But I have good news. The Lord is the God of hope. He really is. We have a line in our mission statement that part of our mission is not only showing love, but sharing hope. Sharing the hope that God himself gives us. And Moses, he still seems to have trouble believing that God is as good as his word. Because notice in verse 11, he says, "Go when God says, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go. Moses resorts to his old objection. Though the language here is slightly different and reflects not only a a lack of self-confidence, but he's also talking about uh, unclean or uncircumcised lips, which is probably also pointing to not only inadequacy, but unworthiness. Like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. How can I go and do God work? But Fred's Friends, when God is on the move, he will not stop or be stopped by anyone or anything. And then we get into the family tree that I kind of skipped over. Just a brief comment on why it's there. I think about when we had a guest speaker, John Johnson. Remember that? First Nations. And he described going to a gathering and they asked him, you know, who are you? And then he was supposed to say where he was from. And he said, uh, well, Langley. And they said, no, where are you from? And he said, Walnut Grove. And they're like, no, totally wrong direction. Like, what people are you from? And then when they found out, it's like, oh, there's your clan. And I think this family tree, that's the way the Hebrew people thought. And this is like, oh, that Moses and Aaron. That's the ones. And it establishes their identity and their status and prepares for the story yet to come. Well, then, in chapter, at the end of chapter 6 and into 7, they're asked to carry on with the Lord's mission. Uh, the verses 28 to 30 just basically are like a bracket. They repeat what we had earlier, kind of get us back up into the story so you didn't snooze off over the uh, genealogy, if that really wasn't interesting to you. And then Moses' old objection, his lack of eloquence, is addressed in the same way by God. I'm going to give you Aaron as your spokesman. But now it describes Aaron's role as like a prophet. You see, it was usually God and then God's messenger, the prophet. But there's this third person in it. You see, there was supposed to be God, and then Moses was supposed to be the prophet, the messenger. And Moses says, I can't speak. God says, okay, plan B, I'll get your brother Aaron. But now you've got three people in this. You've got God, Moses, and the prophet. So it looks as if like Moses is in the God spot, functionally. And in some ways, he is. After all, Pharaoh thought he was God, and then Moses does these things that are kind of like God. You see, Pharaoh will come to know that the Lord acting in and through his godlike representative, Moses, that he is far more powerful than Pharaoh ever bargained with. In verses 3 to 5 in chapter 7, God is clear both about the level of opposition that Moses should expect. Like you thought it was easy street. No, he is going to work against this with all of his might. But, but, you should also know that the level of support that I'm going to give you is going to be beyond what you can imagine. And so Pharaoh has already shown how hard-hearted he is, right? He gets confronted and he says, oh, 
you think life was hell before, I'll make it even worse for you. And his hard-heartedness, he's going to only increasingly as God grow hard-hearted as God multiplies his signs and wonders in Egypt. And God tells Moses straight out, he will not listen to you, but he will not get away with things like he did the first time. You know, when he thought he could just dismiss you. No, he said, I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions. Interesting, it's a military word. Bring out my armies, if you will. It's because they're not going to come out any longer as slaves. They are going to come out as victors. As if they have won a great battle against the superpower of the day. And they're going to come out as the winners. It's going to change their identity, their posture, totally change them. And then the Egyptians will know that I, they will also know that I am the Lord. And God will use Pharaoh's resistance as an opportunity to show even all the Egyptians who the Lord is. And next week we'll look at how each of the plagues actually takes on a God in Egypt. They're very strategic, all the ten plagues. You know, it's like, okay, one after the other, we're going to see that. And maybe just a note about Moses and Aaron's age. I, I couldn't help skip over that. 80 and 83 how about you? Sometimes you ask somebody, you know, to do a ministry and they say, no, I'm past that. You know, I'm retired now. Hmm, didn't work, okay? Remember one of my colleagues, after he retired, he became a pastor. After he retired, he became a pastor. And I remember him saying, you know, I've actually looked into this. Most of the greatest contributions in the world have been made by people after they retired. I never forgot that. These guys should be added to the list. Well, uh, some lessons. I think there's at least four lessons. But first is, be honest with God. He can handle it. Moses is totally, I mean, he's blunt with God. He gives him a failing grade. And God doesn't rebuke him. He reassures him. It's amazing. Be honest with God. He can handle it. And secondly, be encouraged. God has a great plan. If it isn't looking great, it's only getting started. It's not finished. Be encouraged. God has a great plan. And thirdly, beware. Beware of opposing God and his ways. Pharaoh will stand as the ultimate but there are so many people today who are opposing God and his ways. I'll do it my way. It's the same Adam and Eve mistake. But they just, I'll pick and choose what I want, which means that I'm in the captain's, you know, chair, right? Deciding. And, and God, he's kind of a consultant. Never works. God's got to be in the, in the captain's chair. And, and finally, carry on with God's mission. Maybe you are, you are disappointed. Maybe disappointed in a marriage. Maybe in a, in a work that you're doing. In a job. Maybe with some neighbors. Whatever it may be. You know, despite the apparent setbacks, the game plan has not changed. You know, Moses and the Israelites, they may be nitpicking, but God is steady and confident, and the outcome is never in doubt for him. The setbacks, one writer said, 
The setbacks are well within the parameters of God's plan of deliverance. I love that line. The setbacks are, they're well within the parameters of God's plan of deliverance. So carry on with his mission. And just ask yourself, take a moment as I invite the worship team to come up. Which lesson do I need to apply today? Is it the need to be just open and honest with God? Do I need to to be assured that he has a great plan? Do I need to be warned of opposing him? Or do I need to be, get on with his mission? Let's pray. Oh Lord, I think we've all been at times in Moses' shoes where we are just so disappointed with life and even disappointed with you. It's just not turning out the way that we thought life should or the ministry should or a relationship should. And we're just ready to throw on the towel and quit. And yet, God, you have a wonderful plan. It's harder than we can handle, but it is never harder than what you can handle. And so, Lord, I thank you that you use these ancient words and stories. Lord, you... It's like they're living, they're speaking into our lives today because you are the same God. You are the living God who is speaking these words into our lives. Lord, so that we can live for you. Amen. Wow, amen. Thank you so much uh, for those songs. Just thinking about a line in the previous song, Uh, This is God's holy place. And I was thinking about how the marketplace where Moses was in was also God's holy place. I was visiting with someone, talking with someone this week, and they had spent time in hospice with a parent passing away. It was a hard place, and it was a holy place. Because God shows up. Mercy is right behind us. I've seen it. Once again, every time. Just a reminder that uh, if you would like prayer, uh, I've got some people from a prayer team available here on your right-hand side up at the front. And uh, also, uh, choir, there is a practice after the service, so you can take a very quick break. And then if you can be back in here, that would be, that would be great. And uh, just the communion supplies, if you, what, uh, the cups, if you could pick those up and, and toss them out on your way out, we'd appreciate that. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.